All right, take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter. It has been a crazy week for us. Um, we took McKinsey down to Oregon State to check out college, and we actually went to Aunt Tracy's house, and we had a wonderful time together. And uh, so I was gone Monday and Tuesday, and then Zach had his brother and uh, family in uh, for this Thursday and Friday. So nothing really connected this week. So the reality is you get one slide this morning. This is it. All right? So have fun. If you've got your Bibles with me, I'll, I'm going to refer to a bunch of passages, passages and you can uh, join with me and, and follow through and, and do that. But uh, we're in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're talking about government this morning. Woohoo! So here we go. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Uh, that line, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's where I took that message, uh, the title for the message today, Living as Servants from God. And what uh, we're talking about this morning, uh, when you're dealing with the biblical issue, one of the things is you don't get very far before you run into the authority issue. How do I respond to authority? Uh, It can be on a lot of different levels. Uh, Authority relationally, authority in terms of your job, authority institutionally, right? Could be teachers, could be bosses, uh, authority governmental-wise in terms of uh, governors and senators and presidents and all that kind of stuff. But the ultimate issue is how do I react to authority? Because ultimately, the basic issue with God is an authority issue. If you have a problem with authority, you're not going to have a very good time relationally with them. Because God can't stop being God to love you. That's who he is. Right? He loves you because he's God. He can't stop being God to love you. And so we're going to look at what Peter lays out this morning. So when it talks about living as servants of God, it says there, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That word being subject uh, brings up or equals what we would call submission today. Uh, if you go in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, the Greek word is hypotasso, which means to subject oneself. Or the idea there is to lean into, all right, to be under. Uh, So be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So you look in this verse, you can see a couple of things here really quickly. First of all, it says uh, it breaks down. It says whether it be the emperor as supreme. So in that era and that thing, they would have had the emperor and then the rulers within the emperor, uh, they had a number of different titles that they went by. But, for example, the emperor today, for us, it would be Washington, D.C., right? And then we would have state government. So we have state senators. We have a governor. We have uh, the mayor of Mill Creek. There's several different levels of government that we function. We're under the government of Snohomish County, right, and that kind of stuff. And so there's that kind of government structures that we're talking about that it breaks that down. But the idea here held in Scripture is that 
the idea, the concept of government is God's idea. That God's plan, God's sovereignty in putting governments together is that governments would punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, we probably can think of times when that's happened and when governments work the way it's supposed to. We can probably also think of times when that hasn't exactly worked the way it was supposed to, right? Uh, Governments themselves can become corrupt. And so uh, it's probably uh, apropos and timely considering we are in the middle of what? An election season. Anybody struggled with the election season and all that goes with it and uh, all the candidates and all the issues going on? That's what we're talking. And questions arise, what is government? Uh, What is the role of government? What's my role in or under that government? Right? And the biblical picture is that God is the author and the institutor of human governments. Let me take you, if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, Acts 17. Acts chapter 17, and let me give you the backdrop for this story. Uh, Paul is uh, on his missionary journeys. He's in uh, uh, Athens, and he sees, he's at Mars Hill, and he sees this signature. They have a lot of things set up for God, and he sees this one stone marker that says, To an unknown God. And out of that, Paul takes an incredibly brilliant and clever approach and writes a dialogue, a sermon as we call it, to this unknown God. And he's talking to the Epicurean and the Stoics and the philosophers that hang around the Agripopolis. And so he is um, dialoguing with them and he uh, is speaking to them. And in Acts 17, starting with verse 24, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, the point here being, Scripture always points out that God is above his creation and above the created order. Uh, Today you have a lot of pictures of God is equal to or invested or enmeshed in the creation and not separate from it. But Scripture always says that God is above and completely separate from. That creation as we know it on this planet is an act of God. And so God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, <clears throat> excuse me, Although as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, that's Adam, made from one man every nation of mankind. And here's the, the key phrase. He made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. So the idea is that God has put boundaries in place. God has allotted periods for governments to exist. And the goal of that is that in that arena, then those within those governments would seek and uh, as it says here, they would perhaps feel their way, I like that, towards him. This is ESV. They'd feel their way towards him and that they would find him. Now, it is certainly true that the way governments act sometimes can get you to pray. Right? Because they can bring you to a point of hopelessness and despair to where you actually seek out God. And if you actually were to lean towards him and find him, that would not be a bad thing. And so that's that's part of the equation. But the bigger part that I wanted to point out this is you ever have you ever thought about why you live where you live how come here why didn't you 
live in Texas or why not Massachusetts or why not India or why not China or why not Europe, right? Have you ever wondered how it was that you wound up where you are? Why you live where you live? Some of us have traveled uh, almost nowhere. My, my wife, Pam, uh, first, first uh, she grew up five miles from here. Went to Meadowdale High School, right? Right down 164th. Yeah, she's come far, all right? Uh, I grew up in Wisconsin and uh, managed to come all the way out to Seattle. And there's a story of that whole journey and how I did that. Uh, so some of us have traveled hardly at all. Some of us have traveled far. But the question is, why here? Why why did you end up here? And what the Bible says is that God places people in the exact places where they should live. If you ever say, I wonder what I'm doing here, you can easily say, you know, I know the Lord put me here. That's a big start of finding out where you are. Uh, one of the things that... Um, it says as God's allotted periods and, and boundaries. So if you look uh, at the map of the world and just go back uh, even 50 years, the map of the world has changed pretty dramatically in the last 50 years. Uh, I saw uh, on uh, MSN they had a, a maps of Europe, and they had the map of Europe from I think like 1400 to the present and how much it's changed. And it's astonishing because we think of Europe as always just being Europe, right? <clears throat> And nothing budges, those boundaries, those boundaries have moved all over the place. And it's astonishing to watch that and realize how history has shifted as those boundaries have shifted. And so the goal of that is so that each of the nations would seek him. And again, the phrase is that they would perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of a mystery. Uh, for example, I watch a lot of people in ministry, and they they're flying all over the world, right? They they're doing ministry all over the place, and and like I've come really far. I when I first got here, uh, I lived up on the hill over here, just two and a half miles over here. So that's uh, <clears throat> up by um, Park Ridge Chapel. You know where that is? If you go to the Safeway at Archer's Corner, go up. Yes, Andrea, you know where that is because I was next door neighbors with Andrea, and. Uh, and so uh, I lived there, and I went from there all the way to Bothell, right, Totem Lake. And then from Totem Lake, I came here. So I've circled that hill in 35 years. I've gone far, right? And I've often thought, wow, how come I haven't done some of the things that other people have done? And I realized, well, what they're doing is no different than what I'm doing. I'm doing what's been appointed to me. And the job isn't that I need to do what's been appointed to others. The job is I need to do what's been appointed for me well. And so I have tried to do what I've been appointed to do well, right, here in Mill Creek. And so this is the picture that Peter's working off of, is that God God has set this in motion, and that God not only puts you in the place where you're supposed to be, but God puts leaders in the place where they're supposed to be. Now this one is a harder one for us to swallow, because we're Americans and we believe in democracy and we believe even more in independence, okay? And uh, and so we have rage against the machine and right all that kind of stuff and and we uh, you know we have anarchy and we have all the chaos theory and that kind of stuff and we like to think we're not under anybody's thumb, under anybody's jurisdiction. I'm free. I can do what I want, right? But the Bible doesn't indicate that. The Bible says that God puts us in countries in nations in places and then places leaders 
uh, in position. So the question then comes up, all right, so how do I respond if I have a bad leader or several bad leaders? You've probably faced this uh, as you've grown up in this country. You've probably faced this at work with maybe a bad boss, a bad teacher if you're in school. Um, How does one respond uh, to that? And one of the pictures that is the most profound is found in first samuel and the story of david if you take your bibles and turn to first samuel chapter 18 it's the story of david and in the story of david you have king saul and king saul was not obedient king saul violated uh not only the principle but the spirit of several things and so because he violated that samuel the prophet let him know that the kingdom was going to be ripped out of his uh control and given to one better than him and Saul knew that that was David, all right? And so uh, Saul just got all bent out of shape. Now, if Saul had been smart, if Saul had been smart, if he would have submitted to that process, he, would have, he still would have had the kingdom for 30 years. And if he would have realized that he would have not only set David up well as king, but he would have set his son Jonathan up well to cooperate with David, all right? But Saul didn't do that because Saul said, no way, the kingdom's not getting ripped from me. I will control it. And the way I'm going to control it, that's God's choice. I will get rid of God's choice. And so Saul became insanely jealous, crazy jealous, and went all out attempt to try and eliminate David. And how David responded to that authority has spoken down through the ages to people who are under those kind of situations. If you look at 1 Samuel 18, Saul tries to kill David by pinning him to the wall with a spear. Now, most of the time we make that kind of comical, but remember, Saul was a mighty warrior and Saul had won a number of major battles that had turned the tide for Israel. So he was the uh, tallest man in Israel. It says he was head and shoulders above any man in Israel. By the way, when it came to David and Goliath, who should have fought Goliath? It should have been King Saul. Instead, this little ruddy runt of a guy took on the task. And that's part of Saul's shame is that he let someone else do what he was supposed to do in the kingdom. And that talks about his battle with insecurity there. But he gets insanely jealous. So David would play music. So just like when we get irritated and we play music, we calm down. Same thing with Saul. It says that he was given an evil spirit from the Lord and he would get all riled up and then David would come in and play and he would mellow out. Well, in this case, Saul determined not to mellow out. And so while David is playing, it says he hurled a spear at him to pin him to the wall. And I want to suggest to you that Saul... Uh, was a big man and Saul was pretty good at throwing a spear and he pretty much hit what he wanted to hit when he wanted to hit it. The fact that David could elude him tells you how nimble and fast David was. All right? Probably like trying to catch a little jackrabbit, you know, right? Uh, kind of thing. But he couldn't pin David to the wall and David does not react back. Now think about this. Could David have fought back? Yeah, we're talking about the guy who took Goliath out. He's got no fear. He's killed a bear with his bare hands. He's killed a cougar with his bare hands. He is not afraid of much. He could have danced toe-to-toe with Saul and taken the king out, but he wouldn't because the principle of his life was that you do not touch the Lord's anointed. 
If David was going to be king, he was going to be king legitimately because God had put him in the place, not because he had manipulated it or jury rigged it so that he could get it because he wanted it. You ever had God tell you you were going to get something and then try and jury rig the timing, try and jury rig how it's going to happen so it actually happens? David wouldn't do that. He was going to function under the authority he was under. And so David uh, escaped from Saul. If you look at 1 Samuel 19, Saul's trying to plot killing David. And Jonathan tells David, you, ah, you got this totally wrong. My dad is not going to kill you. And he said, no, look, I'm going to miss the dinner tonight. I'm going to say I went to Bethlehem with my family. You watch dinner, watch what your dad does. And sure enough, Saul breaks into a violent rage over Jonathan, calls him the son of a perverse woman. Right? That's a great compliment to your wife. And um, you didn't get that? You're not awake this morning? Okay, there we go. And, uh, and he rages. So Jonathan realizes what David said is true. He's, he's going to try and take him out. And so David avoids that and David flees. If you look in 1 Samuel, there's two incidences in verse 24 and chapters 24 and 26 where in the first one, uh, Saul has gone into a, a cave to relieve himself. Uh, we put that quite nicely, but like my son would say, number two, all right? And you guys are so... We're in church. Can he say that? Yeah. It says it in scripture. I can say it, all right? And it says he's relieving himself, taking a dump, all right? Let's put it in English. That's what he was doing. And it says David was in the back of the cave and David crawled up. Now think about this. Many of you have been in the Northwest, been in the hills and stuff. One kick pebble... One scuffed foot, one whisper too loud. That, you ever been in a cave where that echoes like that? Think of how stealthily David had to come from the back of the cave without making a sound and then cut off a piece of the robe, right? You ever cut fabric? It's not, it doesn't just go, right? So he cut off the robe, managed to do it. Saul goes out of the cave, has done his business, right? And David holds up, hey, do you recognize this? You know? And Saul realizes David had him dead to rights in a completely defenseless position. There are as few defenseless positions in the world as sitting on the throne if somebody's coming after you, right? He says, do you recognize the fact that I had your life in my hands and that I am not guilty of the things you've accused me of? And Saul is aghast at himself and aghast that he was that vulnerable. And then a little later in Samuel 26, 1 Samuel 26, Saul again has uh, lost his mind, is chasing David. They're out in the wilderness. The camp is down. They set the sentries. They post guard. They go to sleep. And it says the Lord caused the deep sleep to come on the camp. So David and Abishai go down into the camp. They literally walk through the soldiers, come to Saul and Abner, and they pick up the spear and the water jug right by his head and walk out of camp and go onto the hill just a little ways away from camp. And then they call out, Hey! Everybody wakes up, Whoa, what's going on? Do you recognize who these are? And he's holding up the king's spear in his water jug. How did you allow your, your king to be that vulnerable? That's a lousy job. The truth of the matter is, whoever the sentries or the guards were that were on post that night probably were killed for lapse of service and judgment. David says again, Do you recognize? This time... The Lord, do you recognize the Lord allowed that deep sleep to come? Do you realize the Lord allowed me to come into camp? Do you realize he allowed me to take 
your spear in your water jug? And, uh, and do, you rely, do you realize I could have taken your life? David was not going to touch the Lord's anointed. David was not going to grab the kingdom by himself. He was going to wait until Lord. And so it shows tremendous perseverance under an ungodly leader. Right? Most of us, and I'm with you, want to get out from under an ungodly leader as fast as we can. Right? I'm that way. I read this story and I think, man, that dude was way more patient and gracious than I would ever dream of being. But the whole principle that David enacted was not touching the Lord's anointed. It was God's job to remove the authority, not David. Not an easy task when David was within inches of his life being snuffed out on several occasions. Another illustration. I don't know why I'm clicking. I only got one slide this morning. Um, (laughs) Go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. We'll start in Acts chapter 21. Paul himself uh, operated within the authority structure that he was a part of at that time. If you start in Acts 21, the story behind that is Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, they've prophesied that bad things are going to happen in Jerusalem. He goes anyways. A riot breaks out. They go into absolute chaos, mayhem, and uh, they're trying to kill Paul. The tribune finds out about it, sends the centurion down. They rescue Paul, pull him out of that mess, out of that pit. They haul him off, and they're trying to figure out what goes on. And what you find here is Paul appeals to the tribune. He says, look, I've not done anything worthy of death. Matter of fact, why don't you let me speak to the group? So the tribune does. Paul starts out talking. The crowd goes into a froth and a frenzy and railing and throwing things and he gets hauled back in and they have this discussion about Roman citizenship. And the, and the tribune says, oh, I, uh, I bought mine. And Paul says, well, I was born a citizen. I.e., you better be careful how you treat this and you better be careful how you treat me because I am a citizen born in a citizenship, not bought like you. So now the tribune's got a real problem on his hands. What does he do? This becomes a legal catch-22 because he is aware now that there's a plot to kill Paul. So he says, all right, this isn't working under me. Let's go up the authority chain. And he sends Paul up to Felix, to Governor Felix. In Acts 23, if you look at Acts 23, Paul is uh, talking and appealing to Governor Felix. And uh, he is, um, again, being accused And they're working through the legal system. And Felix ends up not being there anymore. And then Festus comes in. And under Festus, Festus hadn't quite been able to determine how this all played out and what was going on. But Paul realized he was probably going to get turned over to the Jewish leaders. So he appeals to Caesar. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Festus goes, okay, cool. That's out of my jurisdiction. So we'll send you to Caesar. But I I don't know what to write Caesar. Why why am I sending you to Caesar? Uh, So... In the midst of that, uh, King Agrippa comes and Festus asks King Agrippa, you know Jewish law, would you sit in on this deal? There's this guy, everybody wants to kill him, I can't figure out why he's appealed to Caesar. I need to write something. Would you sit in and help me figure out what I, I don't want to look like an idiot. What am I supposed to write Caesar? So they sit in and, and Paul has some incredible opportunities there to witness and testify according to his faith. And, uh, King Agrippa says, hey, this guy's done nothing deserving death, but since he appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And so then Paul goes to Rome and uh, ends up appealing to Caesar, which we know historically then cost him his life. But Paul worked through the legal system, which that tells you 
our legal system isn't the only layered onion that ever existed in the history of the world, right? I don't know if you've ever been involved in our legal system or how complicated it can get, but it can be frightening how many layers there are to stuff when you get involved in that level. Paul worked through that whole system and worked that way um, in his appeal. Now, the church has reacted in different ways to this uh, historically. I'm just going to give you a couple. You're probably aware of, of several more, but um, this has been a hard pill for the church to swallow. It's not always been uh, one way that we've always done it. Uh, so, for example, in the early church history, you have the martyrs, and they went to their death. And as a matter of fact, it says they held themselves with such esteem that they, the people around them went, obviously these people have to be believers, and they silenced the ignorance of foolish men that were around them, the godless leaders that were around them, by their deaths. So they uh, have a great place in the church history. Uh, then you have Martin Luther who was stuck in a system that was corrupt at the time. He nails his 95 theses on the door. They tell him recant. He says, I can't. Uh, I, I commit myself to God and I can do no more. Right? And, and so that begins a whole internal revolution within the church and then becomes known as what we call the Reformation and the move back to Scripture and the move back to uh, faith. You have the Waldesians. Uh, I don't know if a lot of you know about the Waldesians, but they were a group in north central Italy that lived up in the mountains, what we would know as the Alps. And uh, they were Bible-believing Christians long before that ever became a popular term. Nobody even had that term, but they believed there was a Bible and you should read it. And they built all their communities and their practice around the Bible. And then uh, when the Catholic Church found out they weren't part of the Catholic Church anymore, they came after them and they defended their villages in the mountains and tried to protect their villages and their families. And then uh, a number of lives were lost and then they ended up going all the way up to Europe and then 200 years later coming back down into Italy in the very place where they landed. And the story and the story of faith behind that is incredible. If you've never read that story, it's an amazing chapter in the church history. Uh, We have others who have reacted different to authority. Uh, We call them the pilgrims. All right. They they said that may be God's anointed, but they can anoint somebody else. We got to get out of here. Right. And so they left Europe and they came. They wanted a place where they could uh, worship freely. And despite uh, uh, right. You know, we think coming to America would be really cool. But America was not the pleasant place it is now. Incredibly uh, narrow margins to survive. But they said that's better than living under those tyrants. And so they came to America to establish what we now know as the United States of America for religious freedom. And that's part of our heritage. Uh, there's others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've never heard of Dietrich or never read of his life, uh, incredible dude. And he was during uh, World War II and Hitler. How would you respond if Hitler was your leader? And at first they complied, but when they realized that Hitler was unstoppable and the evil he was perpetrating, they put together, him and his brothers and family and men located in their Christian fellowship, a plan and a plot to assassinate uh, Hitler, which was almost successful, and Hitler miraculously survived. Miraculously survived, and unfortunately, Dietrich didn't. He died in a concentration camp, all right, Uh, days before they were liberated. He died. If you've never read his life story, you should read his life story. It's compelling. 
right? Then there's Martin Luther King, modern era, uh, a different way to react within the system uh, peacefully. And just, we call it the modern civil rights movement, but they had sit-ins and things that drew attention, Rosa Parks and that whole thing, that turned the tide of a whole culture within a country that was supposed to be godly, but was corrupt on one, this one specific issue, and he used that kind to react to it. That, that's just a, a sampling of it. But probably the most startling example of people reacting to authority is Jesus himself. You say, why is that startling? Well, if you go in John chapter 1, uh, it's an incredible chapter. But in John chapter 1, it says in verse 3 and 4, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that has been made. In other words, the very planet we're on, the systems we know, the governments, all the things we know were planned, instituted, and created by God. And Scripture says Jesus was actually the creator, that all things were made by him. It says all things were made by him, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Why is that astonishing? Because Jesus came and submitted to his own creation. Jesus on our turf, Jesus playing by our rules. Right? He came and functioned under the authority of the very creation he had created. And if you read in John 14, why did he do that? Jesus said, I, I will not say, I do not have much more to say to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. He's talking about Satan. But he comes so that, he says, he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father, and then this key phrase, and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus modeled submission for us. He showed us really what it looked like, and that he modeled how to operate under it, even when it was incredibly unfair. Matter of fact, the question this morning is, where did Peter get this from? Right? Flame-throwing Peter. Peter, speak first, think later. Peter, open mouth or insert foot. Where, where did he get this kind of submission from? Peter's not exactly known as one of the most passive guys in the New Testament, right? And I want to suggest to you, it was what Jesus had modeled for him. That was so profound. If you go to the garden, Matthew 26, all four Gospels record this, but I'm pulling from Matthew 26. It says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, and we know from the other Gospels, the other three Gospels, that this is Peter. One of those who was with Jesus, Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from the other Gospels that was Malchus. So Peter sees Jesus being arrested. Peter earlier that night said, I will die with you. Peter says, if we're going down, we're going down. He grabs a sword and he starts hacking and slashing, takes a swing, don't know exactly how it worked, but takes the ear of Malchus right off. Jesus freezes the moment. And he says, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Think about all the movies today that are out. Think about the Avengers. Think about, is the theme in all those movies, right? You've got the Scorch Trials. You've got all these different movies. Is the theme in those movies um, surrender under the authority that's over you? No, the theme is be courageous, hack and slash your way through and be incredibly creative because you can't, you're God and you won't die. 
and you can come out the victor because revenge is beautiful. And what the Bible's trying to warn us is that revenge is awful. Revenge makes us incredibly small, uh, wipes us out. And so Peter says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. What's this cover-up for evil part? The cover-up for evil is... I'm free, but I'm not a person under authority. So I can do what I want. Right? Many people say, I'm free in Christ. Therefore, you don't have a right to tell me what to do. That's not what Peter was talking about. If you're free in Christ, you're free to do good, not to do evil. Right? And I think you will know that that's the language the Holy Spirit's used with you as well. So Peter goes on to say this. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Notice the order there. Honor everyone. Um, It is second nature to us to backstab people, to talk behind their backs, to make fun, uh, to belittle. If we don't like them, if they irritate us, and someone brings their name up, slash, slash, you know, ginsu knife kind of deal. And here Peter says, honor everyone. The fact of learning how to honor. Love the brother. In other words, love the fellowship. Don't just show up. Love it. Be involved. Like Tracy said, plug in. Be a part. Do something. Don't just sit there. Make that a core part of your orbit and your circle. And then fear God, honor the king. Notice the the step there. Fear God, honor the king. In other words, God is higher than the king. And that's part of what we've got to recognize even today is that God is greater than the king. That in the midst of it, it may not look like that at all. In the midst of it, we may know the names of all the candidates and the candidates may look far greater than God. But ultimately, it is God's story that will be remembered, not the candidates. We get locked into history way too quick. Think about, for example, Pilate. The only reason you really know Pilate's name is because it's attached to Jesus' story. Whose story continued on? Jesus's or Pilate's? Right? Jesus's. And it's the same way today. Anley Stanley has a great little clip. He, he's, uh, he, it's about a four and a half minute clip. And I, I wish I could show it, but you can't because of copyright stuff. But it's this great little clip. And he's talking about those of us who are older, over 45. He says, for those of us who are over 45, he says, stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it. And he goes, what do you need to stop? He says, you have to stop this wringing of hands and this uh, whole angst thing because we're scaring the children. He says, you're freaking kids out with all this political banter and end of the world stuff and that kind of stuff. He says, "You're, you're freaking the kids out. Stop. He says, God's story has always gone on. He says, You know, it's not some political system. It's not some laws. It's not some candidate by which we stand and by which we're made whole. It's by what God's doing in spite of all that stuff. He says, you know, back in Jesus' day, the political system didn't work that good. And it hasn't worked all that good all through history. But God's story is still going on. And in the end, are we going to remember the governments of the world or are we going to remember God's story? Remember, we were talking earlier about 
the stone that was cut out of the mountain and it, it crashed against the kingdoms of the world and they all went down and crumbled like dust and were blown away. But the stone that was cut out without human hands became the stone that filled the whole earth. It's going to be God's story that we remember. And therefore God says, don't freak out. And I think that's a great word to us. I think it's a great word because uh, my tendency is to freak instead of pray. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have a very hard challenge praying for people in office. Uh, and I will confess, seldom do I. Uh, I. I don't pray for our senators. I don't pray for our governor. I don't pray for the president. I don't pray for Congress. Uh, I will sometimes when someone brings it up, but it's not the first thing on the top of my, because I kind of treat them like they're off the list, right? And I start to realize, well, who said they're off the list? Who said they're beyond reach? And I started to realize that I'm actually commanded to pray for them. And so I, I've got to actually repent on some of that stuff and change my attitude a little bit. How about some of you? Right? And the idea there is that it's so easy to slash. And I've done that with this group of political candidates. I, I, I won't tell you what I've said, but it, it's pretty funny. <laughs> it's very Wisconsinite. And, uh, but I started to realize, you know, that's not right. I, I gotta re, I gotta turn from that. I I need to extend some honor here on that. And so when we're talking about what Peter says is, hey, understand this. He's talking to this group of exalted exiles who, their their government isn't that great for them either, right? They're exiles for a reason. But he's saying, operate well under the place where God has planted you, because it's God's story that is supreme, not the government's story. It's God's story that is supreme not your company it's god's story that is supreme not your neighborhood and he's saying make sure you're plugged into god's story more than you are the other stories and so he says be subject for the lord's sake to every human's institution and be servants of the living god let's pray father thank you this morning for my sister's baptism what a delight and uh this word from peter um lord we don't do well we don't do well with human authority and the, the scary truth and the hidden truth is we don't many times do well with your authority either. And it's a great word that what's wrong is not so much the system but our hearts and that we have to line up better with you. And so we seek you this morning as we think about authority and where we lived and where we're placed that you would help us to pray for those who are in authority and that we would live godly lives with the authority we've been placed under. It is an enormous challenge, but you are more than capable of doing that. You've done it all through history. And we ask that we'd be privileged to carry it out with you for your sake. So we give that to you a great hope and ask this in your name. Amen.